I could always buy a bottle. Fifth of scotch. What do you want me to do? Just step out in the alley? Is that it? Big John, do you think this boy is a hustler? Sausage, rack him up. You're hearing a rain check, and I know it. You're hanging on by your nails. Let that glory whistle ring out loud and clear for Eddie, and you're a wreck on a railroad track. Your horse had finished last. Now, don't make trouble, Miss Ladybug. Live and let live. Sticklish business any way you look at it. Come on, we'll stick together. Everyone and welcome to Ticklish Business. I'm Kristen, joined as always by Emily. We decided to do a bit of a last-minute change to the schedule and honor the late great Piper Laurie, talking about her life, her career, and 1961's The Hustler. But before we get into that, we'd like to briefly remind everyone that if you haven't checked out our Patreon at Patreon.com/TicklishBiz, you should. We do additional bonus pods, including doubled features, looking at remakes based on a true podcast looking at biopics and true crime in our latest series. But have you read the series focused on classic film adaptations of your favorite works of literature? We just put out our episode on the 1925 and 2004 versions of Phantom of the Opera, which was a lot of fun. We also have our Halloween episode of Doubled Features looking at three different versions of The Mummy. We also give out regular care packages of movies and gifts. Christmas is coming as much as I'd like to hold it off a little bit longer. But that means if you're a patron, I will be sending out a special Ticklish Biz branded item for everybody. So please consider supporting us at patreon.com slash Ticklish Biz. And don't forget that Emily and I are both authors. We have books and they help us do other things with our lives. You can buy those wherever you get books. Our Redbubble store has some fabulous art, all designed by Samantha Ellis and Terrence Hills, featuring your favorite stars. And again, holidays are coming. We have our popular Jean and Judy Makoko mugs available for you to buy. You can find that at ticklishbiz.redbubble.com. On to the show. We don't have a guest because time of recording is actually the weekend of the TSAM Classic Cruise. Spoiler alert, everybody was incredibly busy. So if you're on the cruise, hope you had fun because we are here not on a cruise. But we are talking about The Hustler. I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing because that movie is very, very depressing. But we are here to talk about the amazing Piper Laurie, who is just one element of amazingness in The Hustler. Directed by Robert Rawson. Co-written by Rawson and Sidney Carroll based on a book by Walter Tevis, which I've not read. Emily, I'm assuming The Hustler is not part of the great American literary canon yet. It escaped me, but maybe we'll do it in the future. We'll see. Possibly. Yeah, who knows? Tells the story of Fast Eddie Felsen, played by Paul Newman, who is a pool hustler. And his goal is to beat Minnesota Fats, played by Jackie Gleason. In the interim, he meets a broken alcoholic woman named Sarah, played by Piper Laurie, and a lot of really sad stuff happens from there on in. This is Piper Laurie's probably most famous role. And before somebody says she did this, she did that, yes, she did a lot of things. But if we're going off of probably most recognizable piece of film work, it is this. It is just fantastic to think that she was spending her career before this making a lot of 
fluffy films. She was one of Rock Hudson's earliest co-stars in a lot of the rom-coms he was making before they figured out where to put him. She did a lot of sword and sandal films that she says were really bad with Tony Curtis, who she said was a total jerk to her. I'm going to be referring a lot to her amazing autobiography, which Emily got me hooked on. It is probably up there with Esther Williams for the most tea spilled in a celebrity autobiography. This was really the film that she felt gave her some gravitas. She had stepped away from acting for a little bit to do some TV work. She was one of the earliest actresses to embrace television at a time when that was not what actors were doing. I was rewatching this and I was really struck by how she holds her own opposite Paul Newman, which is not an easy task, but she is so good in a movie that I don't love. And I think that's just because it's got a lot of pool in it and I'm not a pool person. I'm also not good with gambling movies. Gambling movies and me, if you show me a poker movie, I don't understand the rules of poker and it irritates me. But I love the human elements of this movie as opposed to the pool elements. Emily, what do you think about this movie and Piper Laurie in it? Piper is so compelling whenever she's on screen in this film. You can't take your eyes away from her. When you compare the sublime beauty of Paul Newman and how she mirrors that, she's slightly plainer than he is just because he's this dashing movie star and he knows it and we know it by this point. The way his character falls in love with her it's so believable and true, and they're both so genuine in their love story. In addition to holding her own against Paul Newman, she holds her own against George C. Scott, who is so resolutely evil in this, in a way that is jarring and upsetting. And this entire movie, I really, really like it, but it is upsetting and sad and heartbreaking. And it makes you feel just horrible start to finish. It really does, but in a really good movie kind of way. And she just is impeccable against these two men who were well known by this point. She's just so beautiful and gut-wrenching and sad. She does sadness in a way that doesn't make you pity her, but it makes you feel how sad she is. And I feel like that's very hard to do. And it's very unlike a lot of the performances that we've talked about. We've talked about men having this old Hollywood entrance, right? When they enter a room and they get that close up and you're like, oh, that's the star moment. Women didn't often get that in the same way. They often did in terms of maybe having that close up because they're wearing an amazing Adrian dress or something. It's always couched in their appearance. And when we meet Sarah in this movie, it's her and Paul Newman. He's drawn to her, but she's at a bus station she doesn't go anywhere. She just goes yeah. and sits and drinks. That's her one element of human interaction. And that's how she's introduced. And yet, this is a character that is just so dissolute and broken. And yet, Piper Laurie is so beautiful that that really does transcend her character. You completely understand why Eddie is interested in her and why she catches his eye because of all of that tenacity that's buried under all of this heartache and sadness and doom. And it's without being the 2000s manic pixie dream girl. And at least the character is not written in that way. And she does not act it in that way where she hopes she can bring him around through the progress of the movie. He never acts in a way and he never says this woman is going to fix me. 
And she's so regular in this that you can understand that the other flashy gentlemen who are in the pool hall, who are the full buffet of Irish and Italian character actors with a couple Greeks thrown in as well. And you can tell that they're not used to women who are just this normal in their lives. You know, they're probably used to malls and chicks and dames and and all those wonderful types that roll through these types of movies. And she's not one of them. She's just so normal. And I talk about earlier the concept of I see this, I'm not a big pool person. Make no mistake, this is not a movie about pool. Mm -mm. Pool is the thing in which these characters revolve around. But the movie really is this deep metaphor about life and its ups and downs all presented through the prism of pool. It's important to point out that this is early 1960s. The studio system is starting to fall apart. You're getting a lot more socially aware movies at this point, a lot more deeply complex and nuanced films. It probably also helped that we're finally moving out of HUAC and House and American activities. So films are allowed to have that complexity without being considered communist. That's what I appreciate about this movie so much is that the entirety of the film is fast Eddie Felsen assuming that if he can beat this guy, that it will mean something. It will mean that he is the best. It will mean that all of his life has a purpose in a way. And we can just go completely to the deep end of this. It's almost like a way for him to gain a form of immortality. As the movie progresses and he makes those ups and downs, Fats wipes the floor with him at one point in the movie. And I don't want to get into the end too quickly, but it is so poignant how the film ends because it's one of those movies where, and we see it a lot in modern films today, where you see a couple and the guy's like, I have a dream and how dare you besmirch this dream? And the woman has to be the voice of reason to be like, actually, no, your dream is not realistic. It's not going to pay the bills. It's not going to do all these things that you want it to. And this is a movie that really does allow that ending to be authentic, which I appreciate. Yeah, she has this way of it's both written this way and the way that Piper Laurie delivers all of her lines is that there is a resolute calmness to it. She's very even keeled. She really only loses her head at Eddie once. And it's clearly the moment where she's saying, our love is not enough. There's no rescuing him from his downward spiral. And it comes in obviously the most crucial time in the film. Even when she has her breakdown about loving Eddie and not being able to break his concentration on the thing that he's concentrating on, it's not screamy. It's not overly passionate. A lot of times when you talk about method actors of the time, you get those moments where they're screaming and they're sobbing and you've got the snot bubbles and you're just like, this is too much. Have I ever had a breakdown like that? No. So is this even true to human emotion? But they're trying to portray something on screen that's never been portrayed before. But she doesn't do that. Her breakdown is very loving. She's pleading. She's not screaming. And her performance throughout the entire thing, she's so sexy and she's so self-assured and she's so sure in the emotions of her character. It's a very interesting thing that I always think about when it comes to mid-century literature, which I've discussed a couple times on my book podcast and mid-century movies for this, is the people 
who are both in these movies and the characters being portrayed have lived through the worst of the worst. And it's something that I like to remind people that their parents lived through World War I. You're being raised by a whole generation of people with PTSD that has no concept of whatsoever. Then they have kids and the depression happens and everybody is starving. And then those kids who survive get to fight in World War II. And then we're now at the point where we're post all of that. And they're like, go and be normal adults. Be a normal adult. And that is so well portrayed in this movie of the poverty, the struggle, the feelings towards Piper Laurie's character who has daddy money coming in, the feelings of how am I ever going to make a name for myself in this broken world that hasn't existed for two generations? It's a perfect movie for the perfect time that could only happen in the early 1960s. And finally, the code is breaking down so we can actually portray what life is actually like in the early 1960s, which is you've got these two desperate people hooking up in the city because they can find no other joy in life possible. It's a heavy, heavy, heavy movie. It really is. And I love that you mentioned that her character is not showy because she would take a 15-year break after this movie and then come back and do probably one of the showiest performances of her career, which is Carrie, which is very over the top. So I love that you get both ends of the spectrum. What I love about Paul Newman movies, especially with his leading ladies, is that there is this verisimilitude to it. This is a real couple that you're definitely going to understand why they work, why they don't work, and most importantly, why they're having sex. Make no mistake, this is a very sexy movie, and it is because of the two of them. And really, this is Paul Newman with just every one of the women that he ever worked with. We're not hiding the fact that these two characters are living in sin at one point. There is a sexual attraction, which is what binds them in the first place without calling attention to it. When they have their first meeting, he takes her back to the apartment. When they have this really hot makeout moment, she turns him down because she says, quote, you're too hungry. And I'm just like, that is a hotline for starters. And also it conveys everything about why these two characters are going to fall into the trap they're going to fall into. The moment where he propositions her and he says, let's go to a liquor store and get a bottle of liquor. And then she's like, well, you're going to take me back out to the alley. And he says, no, your place. I clocked it. It takes eight seconds for her to say yes, which is admittedly, if Paul Newman was propositioning me, that's five more seconds than I would give him because Paul <laughs> Newman is so beautiful. She thinks it over very quickly. And she's like, okie dokie, let's go. And then she turns him down at the door, which is just so sexy. Oof, beautifully written. Not even meat cute. It's just a meat hot moment. <laughs> it's why Paul Newman movies are, if you are talking about how there's no sex in classic film, you are not watching the right movies. You should just exclusively be watching Paul Newman movies. I appreciate that. It turns into a trope in the 1970s when drugs became prominent in films. So you often saw doomed junkie lover movies that became their own genre of films. And this is starting that in the sense that both of these characters are horrifically broken and lose themselves in each other. But what I really think this movie does so smartly is say, yes, the sex is what definitely brings them together and keeps them enmeshed. And yet 
there is that really lovely scene of them later where she says, well, can't we just be normal people? Can't we just pretend that we're normal? They clearly do want a relationship that goes beyond the physical. Like any great doomed love story, you want them to be able to figure it out so that they can do that. What I love and I hate about The Hustler is that Paul Newman's character comes to a realization at a certain point, but it comes at the expense of the woman. Considering how often films do utilize the demise of a female character to make that man get to that point, I hate that it does it. And we'll talk about it when we talk about the end. Again, I think it does something just a little bit differently in the sense of how things wrap up. I was thinking to myself, I have all my notes and I really wrote down, is this really one of those movies where they fridge the woman in order to give the man a reason? Yes and no. It's slightly more nuanced than your usual TV. We're going to kill the broad to give him character motivation, but it is on first glance that. And it's both upsetting, but also you have to remember it's 1961 and second wave feminism hasn't even come around yet. So they can't understand the concept of female motivation. Paul Newman did a much better job with it, with the movies that he was both in and directed, certainly of understanding that women are people. But unfortunately, this is only getting 45% of the way there. It does leave you a little bit hungry. It does. The book had been optioned several times before Paul Newman got to it. Frank Sinatra wanted to make it. Robert Rawson's daughter thinks that a lot of the previous adaptations made it into a pool movie and not about the humans. And supposedly Bobby Darren claimed that he got the part because Paul Newman couldn't do it. He was going to do a movie with Elizabeth Taylor. Taylor had to continue making Cleopatra so Newman was open. He could take the role. And supposedly nobody ever told Bobby Darren. He just found out about it at a horse race. Make no mistake, I think Bobby Darren is a fun actor. I would have never seen him in this movie. There's nobody else that could have played this character but Paul Newman. This is one of the great, great Newman roles. But he is so able to work as part of an ensemble. I said this when I talked about Paris Blues during the Discoveries episode. Usually you would get movies where an actor, an, a big A-plus star, had a bunch of B and C actors around them because no one actor can outshine the star. Paul Newman didn't do that. He often played opposite stars that were equally as big as him, and he compliments them very well. I know Jackie Gleason, most people remember him from The Honeymooners, and he is just so great in this role, playing a character that I would have never foreseen. Minnesota Fats is... I don't want to say he's a one-note character, but he's a character we don't ever know a lot about. He is the impediment. He is the guy that is supposed to stand in Eddie's way between success and failure. I love how Jackie Gleason's character talks to him like he understands he's been in this situation before. There was probably another guy that stood in front of him. That ending sequence when... We're just going to talk spoilers at this point. When Eddie wins and George C. Scott's character is still making trouble for him. There is that moment where Eddie tells Minnesota Fats, you shoot a great game of pool, Fats. And he's like, so do you, Fast Eddie. You get that dynamic of respect. And really, you see that respect throughout Jackie Gleason's entire performance. He never talks down to this kid. He never treats him like he's beneath him, which I really appreciated. And freaking George C. Scott is the personification of just evil. And yet, I say this every time I watch this, he's hot, right? I feel yeah. horrible saying that, but there was a hotness there to it that I should not appreciate. 
Am I a horrible person, Emily? No, you're not. There's also (laughs) an incredible magnetism to Jackie Gleason. I obviously knew him from The Honeymooners and knew him from the broad comedy work. It's something so telling that he is so subtle in this. You have Paul Newman doing a couple scenes where he's having a big method acting breakdown. And it's fine. It's wonderful. It's incredibly compelling to watch. But Jackie Gleason ain't that. To watch Jackie Gleason put all of his emotions in the most tiny movements. He's got slight cocks of eyebrows, slight hand movements. He'll adjust his shirt in a way that you never see Eddie doing. And it's so nuanced and it's so beautiful. It is an incredible performance from someone who is known predominantly for comedy. And it's such an incredible testament to how good comedic actors actually are when they take on non-broad comedy roles. It's something that I think we discuss quite frequently when it comes to modern movies, where you have someone who's known for doing slapstick comedy, and then they do something that is not that, and you're going, holy Moses. And I love that Paul Newman, I was thinking of this because I just recently watched HUD for the first time. Have you joined Ticklish Biz's Patreon yet? Well, you should, just like Allie Moore, Amy Hart, Andrew Hoppy, Christine Meyer, Danny, David Floyd, Donna Hill, Gates, Jacob Haller, Jonathan Watkins, Kimberly, Krista Painter, and McEff. Listen to episodes 48 hours early, receive exclusive membership items, and even guest on an episode. You also get access to entire bonus series like Based on a True Podcast, Doubled Features, and our new limited series, But Have You Read the The Series? It's all at patreon.com slash ticklishbiz. Back to the show. And it's incredible how often Paul Newman was willing to play the worst human beings on the planet. Because Fast Eddie ain't a good guy. He's the typical character where you're like, I'm going to let a lot slide because you look like Paul Newman. And HUD is the exact same thing where you're like, I'm going to let even more terrible things slide because you look like Paul Newman. And Paul Newman knew he could pull those characters off. They're so compelling to watch him play the worst human beings on the planet. HUD is an interesting comparison because he's just so repentantly sexual and evil in in equal measure. I want to go back to what you're saying about Jackie Gleason and the bits of business that he does. We don't talk enough about stage business these days. Movies don't really rely on that because audiences don't have the patience anymore. Also, so much is CGI'd in after the fact. Just the meticulousness of these two characters when they first get together, the taking off of the jacket, the analyzing of the tables and the pool cue. It goes back to something that I love about Marlon Brando in the way that he would play with a set. He Mm -hmm. would just pick something up and you're like, why did he do that? And it tells you so much about the character and this lived in quality to the movie that I don't think we get nearly enough of in contemporary filmmaking. But even someone like Bert, the George C. Scott character, who is so venal and so consumed by greed, he also is interested in Sarah Piper Laurie's character. What I noticed this time around that I didn't necessarily notice the first time is that I don't think it's enough to say that George C. Scott's character is just evil for the sake of it. He is a guy that is so desperately jealous to not have any purpose in life. He sees how much Sarah is devoted to Eddie and how Eddie is devoted to her. His machinations are not just to pull them apart because he thinks she's a distraction, but because he feels 
He needs the bit of shine. She's the shine that he wants. And you see moments where he's trying to be kind to her, or at least trying to interact with her when they're on the train. And he's talking about where she's been. And she's like, I've never been there. And he's like, doubling down on it. Any type of interaction that might have been positive, he is just smothered because he comes on way too strong and cannot put his own ego and personality aside. And yet, At the end of the movie, when they have that moment where Eddie can't get over the fact that Sarah has killed herself, he talks about how they ruined her. Bert's response is just, well, if it wasn't yesterday, it'd have been six months from now. And both of those things can be true. Both of these guys have an understanding of who the character is that, yes, she was probably always going to be depressed. She's probably always going to struggle with alcohol. And I love that duality of Both of these guys understand elements of who she is, but neither one gets who she is as a whole human being. And neither one of them can provide for her in the way that she needed. That's what I think makes the script just so fun to digest and pick apart, is how everything can be true at the same time. Do you bring up the moments where he's trying to create some sort of relationship or camaraderie with her? And I picked up all the moments where he was just pettily cruel to her for no reason. George C. Scott and Paul Newman are having breakfast in the dining car, and she comes in a little bit late at the end of breakfast. They have her stand there, and she's standing there, and she's standing there, and Paul Newman finally invites her to sit down, and George C. Scott gets up and leaves. And it's like, that is so rude. That is so pettily rude. It's all power play, and it's all machinations. I don't even think Bert, the George C. Scott character, is greedy. He's greedy, not necessarily for money, but for control, because he can't control the ball the way these pool hustlers can. But he's got to be in the mix. He's got to be interesting. He's got to seem cool to these people. And the only way he can do that is by staking them. When he's got all this cash that we never really find out where it comes from, because why ask? Nor do you want the answer. It's just so petty and disgusting, and they need him, and they hate that they need him. Piper Laurie's character, Sarah, just is like, why do you want to be in this world where you need these terrible people? And Fast Eddie's like, well, at least I can be king of the demons. And she's just like, enough with this. Enough. We're done. And her death scene is just so tragic without making it a huge death scene. I think of Cleopatra, the demise of Elizabeth Taylor. You don't kill stars off screen in this time period. You give them a big awards worthy send off. And we don't give Sarah that send off at all. She is alone. She has been assaulted. She's just done with life. When they come in and discover her body, I love that it takes Eddie a minute to have a reaction. You don't go for the easy emotion. He has to process the shock of discovering the woman that he loved, question mark, has died. It takes him a minute to get that big reaction moment, which there's been a lot written about the hustler changing the context of filmmaking. I was looking at Ethan Morden, who is a theater and film historian, and he talked about how the hustler is one of a handful of 60s films that redefines the relationship of film to the audience, where he says, quote, it's one of challenge rather than flattery of doubt 
rather than uncertainty. And he said no films of the 50s, quote, took such a brutal, clear look at the ego affirmation of the one-on-one contest, at the inhumanity of the winner or the castrated vulnerability of the loser. That says so much about this movie because at the end of the film, Eddie doesn't necessarily give up on his dream, but he understands the reality of it, which is that it will keep him from having a relationship with anybody. It will constantly put his life in peril and it will never fulfill him. It's not him walking away from his dreams. It's the realization that the dream is a dream. I would love to know how audiences of 1961 growing up on 50s films about everybody can buy their own house and every movie ends happily ever after, how they would have felt watching this movie where it says, no, sometimes stuff does not work out and you just have to be okay with that. Taste of him having his success and comeuppance because he walks away with some of Fats' money and he doesn't have to pay any out to Bert, even though despite the fisticuffs that come near in the pool hall. It's so interesting comparing it to just 1950s, where in the 1950s, they would add a wedding at the end. And this is just, you're leaving a dirty pool hall. You're actually being told you're not welcome back. That is just an incredible, you're not even welcome amongst the gangsters. If this was 1959, this movie would have ended with Sarah in the hospital, probably in a coma. They would have called him at the pool hall and been like, she's got to be okay. And he'd have been like, I'm walking away from this world and we're going to go off. I can see that completely happening had this been made even two or three years before. We're going to drive off in a Cadillac and have our 2.3 kids. And it's just like, no, he's just going back to a life of poverty and misery in Oakland, where the only way he's ever been able to make a living has now been taken away from him at the threat of death. So this is not a happy movie in any capacity, but at least Paul Newman's character doesn't die. The only woman who's ever shown him affection had to. But Paul Newman's character doesn't. And you just hope that he becomes a ranch hand somewhere and doesn't drink away his sorrows for the rest of his life. I also want to bring this back to, I mentioned Brando because I was thinking about On the Waterfront. And I don't think we can stress enough how much this is response and the antithesis of On the Waterfront, even though both movies are also commenting on it. We're going to bring it back to HUAC for a little bit because Robert Rawson did deal with the House Un-American Activities Committee, and he felt that this was a somewhat autobiographical film about his dealings with HUAC. He refused to name names at first, but then he did change his mind and did name names, much like Eddie betrays Sarah in this attempt to gain what he wants. In the end of something like On the Waterfront, where Terry, the Marlon Brando character, decides that he's going to be bigger than everybody and naming names is the right thing to do. And I'm not going to get into the sticky pickle of Elia Kazan's personal politics and my own thoughts on them, but I have the thoughts. In this instance, Rawson's going for something far more nuanced, which is I name names, I sold my soul, I hurt people, and now I get to live with that. I get to live with my actions having consequences. And at the same time, the way he looks at capitalism in this movie also ties back to HUAC because a lot of these people did name names in order to work, to keep the machine going, to keep content being made. I really appreciate it more than making this grand statement of I name names and I don't give a hoot what you think about me, kind of like what On the Waterfront does. 
Rawson is living more in the ambiguity of that and the uncertainty of what does that say about me? What does that say about society? My Huac divergence. It's really hard to grapple, at least people our age. It's really difficult to grapple and put your head around the sheer political insanity of the early start of the Cold War and the obsession with communism and the obsession with ferreting out the bad guys, we're air quoting this, this being just floating in the miasma of guilt and the future is probably the only way you can continue this, of just having it hang above your head for the rest of your life and understand that this was both put upon you and you made decisions and we're just going to have to continue. Purgatory is actually a worse sentence than heaven or hell. You have to live with the guilt and all of your feelings, and there is no way you're ever going to be able to reconcile them. And that is truly a very heavy mid-century theme in all of movies and literature of just, I'm going to have to live with my decisions, and there's no nobility, and there's no error in them. It's just is is a really depressing thing that everybody is grappling with post-World War II. It just simply was the zeitgeist. I want to talk about Oscars because the early 1960s are a weird time for awards. This was nominated for several. Of course, Best Picture, Paul Newman, Piper Laurie, Jackie Gleason, George C. Scott, George C. Scott refused to be nominated, though, because he was a rebel. Director, screenplay, cinematography. Bringing it back to Piper Laurie, she was nominated alongside Sophia Loren for Two Women, Audrey Hepburn for Breakfast at Tiffany's, Natalie Wood for Splendor in the Grass, and Geraldine Page for Summer and Smoke. Emily, you want to guess who won the Oscar? I have no idea, because that is tough competition, and I can't really pick a horse in that one. I know it wasn't Piper, and I don't think it was Audrey, because I think she only won for Roman Holiday, but I might just be making that up. You would be right. It was neither of them. It was Sophia Loren for Two Women. She was the first actor to win an Oscar for a foreign language film. I've never seen Two Women. Somebody can tell me if I am a jerk for saying I don't know if she necessarily deserved it, because I think Piper Laurie does really, really good in this movie. But then again, I mean, Natalie in Splendor is fantastic. Audrey Hepburn in Breakfast at Tiffany's. I've only seen that movie once and I've had no inclination to see it again, but somebody can tell me if I should. So yeah, I don't know. The Oscars that year are very, very weird. And this is also the West Side Story year. So George C. Scott refused to even be nominated, but it wouldn't have mattered because he was bested by George Chikiris for West Side Story. Take of that how you will. Paul Newman was nominated alongside Maximilian Schell for Judgment at Nuremberg, Charles Boyer for Fanny, Spencer Tracy for Judgment at Nuremberg, and Stuart Whitman for The Mark. Do you want to take a stab at who won Best Actor? Spencer Tracy? No. Despite the fact that Judgment at Nuremberg was nominated twice in the same category, which in theory leads to a split and neither one wins, Maximilian Schell did win for Judgment at Nuremberg. He's really good in that movie, but... I don't know. It's a weird win when you have Paul Newman right there. Maybe we'll have to do Judgment Nuremberg one day, but you really have to like prep. It's even more depressing than this movie. I want to throw out some Piper Laurie stuff specifically because I read her autobiography this year and it is a delight. She has really good memories of working on this movie. She was not often proud of a lot of her projects, especially early in her career. But I don't think people realize 
Hyper Lori toiled for so long in Hollywood before she busted out in this movie, which is weird that she, this 1961 is when she broke out and she had been making movies for like a decade prior to that. You know the story I'm going to tell because I feel oh, like yeah. I need to tell it on this podcast. So we don't often get into prurient interest, but I have to at least celebrate Piper Laurie for the fact that she took pen to paper or hands to a computer and decided to write about how she lost her virginity to Ronald Reagan. Yeah. Ronald Reagan. I find that funny. 1950s sexuality is just all bound up in their entire relationship. They're one night of not necessarily passion. So I just have to throw that out. Emily, you were the one who told me about this. I was very lucky that I got to meet Piper in person once many, many years ago. I'm jealous. She's truly the coolest, most wonderful, most entertaining people I've ever met. Just incredibly sweet, incredibly kind, incredibly interested in what other people were doing. Just really loved creative people. Just really, really fantastic experience of getting to meet her. I had Thanksgiving with her through friends of friends. It was really, really fantastic. Also very odd of the experience of meeting her when she was later on in years and then being told the story of losing her virginity to Ronald Reagan. It's a little bit jarring, but she did have that sense of humor about everything from what I'm aware of my friends who knew her better. Man, she was just really, really cool. And I just can't stress that enough. Sometimes people who you think are really awesome when they're younger and their phenomenal storied career, how she had this breakout when she was about 29 and then didn't work again until she was in her mid to late 40s. That's such an incredible waste of a wonderful talent. But the things that she did in her later years of Carrie and Twin Peaks, you could tell that all of that talent, it was just waiting to come out again. And she was just so cool. She's even been on episodes of Murder, She Wrote, that I've been like, Piper, oh my God. And she just, every time she steals the scene, it's amazing. I always endorse watching her episode of Law and Order SVU, where she is evil. It's great. We almost did Carrie for our Halloween episode, and we did not. But I thought about it. Mostly, I don't want the king factor in there. I'm interested to go back and see more of her early studio work. I know that she didn't love working in some of those films, she talked about how Tony Curtis was just completely horrible to her, which that tracks. <laughs> she has really great things to say about Rock Hudson. So I recommend reading her autobiography, Learning to Live Out Loud. It's fantastic. And yeah, the Ronald Reagan section is just as hilarious as you would think it is. She also talks about how Charles Coburn. Coburn. James Coburn or Charles Coburn? Charles Coburn, the okay. chunky guy. Not James Coburn. I interviewed Diane Cannon. Go listen to that one if you want to hear her talk about James Coburn stories. She's got good ones. I have the hots for James Coburn. So I was like, <laughs> wait, no. <laughs> no, Charles Coburn from the 40s. She talks about how he was. he's a little grabby as old men of that era were. Her autobiography is utterly amazing, and I heartily, heartily endorse it. We should mention, too, they do a sequel to The Hustler eventually. Martin Scorsese did The Color of Money in the 80s with Tom mm. Cruise as our new Fast Eddie, different character, though, and Paul Newman reprising his role. I've seen The Color of Money. My issue is that I don't care about Tom Cruise. I like Paul Newman. I want more of him. I know that the relationship that he has with the girl in the movie is more of like a father-daughter, but they got chemistry. I know there's a big age gap, but 
one of the few instances where I'm just like, they have a charade type of thing, like a Cary Grant, Audrey Hepburn, where you want them to get together and they don't. You're just frustrated. Yeah. That's my big takeaway from Color of Money. It's fine. It's a pool movie. It's a pool movie. It is a pool movie. It does not have the humanity factor, I think, of The Hustler. We'll talk about it to Tom Cruise. Yeah, and his (laughs) high hair. Yeah, uh, his high 80s hair. I cannot yeah. stress that enough. Hopefully most people will check out more of Piper Laurie's stuff and read her book. And I cannot hype this enough. She talks about having sex with Ronald Reagan and it is high hysterical. And if you say, Kristen, how is it funny? Oh, it's funny. It's hilarious. It's funny. She was just so real as a human being. And you don't expect necessarily starlets from that era. And I mean, she was working in early, early, early peak conservative years. You would always expect someone like that to be a little bit guarded about their legacy and the people that they met. Just the magic of Hollywood. We're going to put Disney sound effects behind that. But she wasn't. She was so real about it. And she was just a person. And if you ever want to see old Hollywood stars as people and not movie stars. Piper Laurie's autobiography, man, she's just a person and she was a really cool person. I'm going to take us out with an excerpt from Piper Laurie's autobiography that I posted on social media because I needed to emphasize this. So this is from Piper Laurie's autobiography, Learning to Live Out Loud. The evening up to that point had been quite romantic, but the actual intimacy with Ronnie was without grace. I can appreciate it now. Ronnie was more than competent sexually. He was also a bit of a show-off. He made sure I was aware of the length of time he had been, quote, ardent. It was 40 minutes, and he told me how much the condom cost. In all fairness, I suppose that was to reassure me. There's more to that, but I will let you read all that yourself. Overall, The Hustler is... Really good. Piper Laurie is fantastic in it. Paul Newman is just Paul Newman. It's a, it's a great movie. If you're looking for one of the first movies that Piper Laurie was proud of, you should definitely make a point to see it. Emily, anything you want to add? She should be proud of this. She deserved an Oscar nomination. She probably deserved the Oscar. She's phenomenal. Rare that you have a female character that's written with the gravitas and nuance and ability to hold her own as a real character against the male character, the male showpiece characters of a movie of this time. She does it with a plum. She should be so proud of this film. Listeners, if you have thoughts about Piper Laurie, The Hustler, Ronald Reagan's sexual prowess, whatever you want to throw out, you can email that to us at ticklishbiz at gmail.com or send it to us via all social media platforms. We are on Twitter at ticklish underscore biz, as well as Instagram and Facebook at ticklishbiz. That's going to close us out for today. You can listen to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. Reviews matter. So leave us one on Apple Podcasts. Five stars should do. You can follow me at therap.com or on my social media platforms at Kristen Lopez 88. Emily Edwards is also on all social media platforms at Ms. Emily Edwards. Our Patreon helps keep the lights on at Ticklish Biz HQ and gives us chances to do new content like our episode that we just did of But Have You Read the Series on The Phantom of the Opera? So consider helping us out at patreon.com slash ticklishbiz. We also have books out. You can order them wherever you get books. We will return on December 6th with an episode devoted to a movie that you might have heard me and Samantha discover a couple years ago, 1943's Cry Havoc. And we will have a very special guest on for that one. Till then. (laughs) 